So each week as we gather, we um, enter into what, what is a rather peculiar thing. Um, I don't know if you feel this, uh, perhaps acutely in some seasons and less so in others, but when you gather and you, and you come to a place, and that place is um, a place that calls itself church, this is something that is like, like bigger than you, and yet you're now a part of it. It's something that has happened for thousands of years and is still happening today. Uh, and the way that church is expressed is like, it's so diverse. There's Catholic churches and Lutheran churches. There's all sorts of churches, Christians who are joining together to say that Jesus is the one who he claimed to be. Uh, but today, the, the, the third Sunday of Advent, all of that is called into question as you'll see in, in our teaching text from the Gospel according to Matthew, which I invite you, uh, if, if you're able, to, to stand for the reading of God's Word. And we don't simply stand um, just to reckon like, yes, here's the Word of God, but it's a, a way that we could actually practice this formation, that God's Word can draw us to do something. And so um, we assume this posture of, of saying, yes, we're ready. We're ready to hear what you might have to say through us or to us through your Holy Spirit. So this is the gospel according to Matthew, picking up in chapter 11. In verse 1, we read, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, this is John the Baptist, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet everyone who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So in this, the third Sunday of Advent, we will enter into um, the tension that John just presented there, this tension of faith and doubt. Um, but we also have this thing that's occurring, which is the breaking forth of more light. And on each uh, subsequent Sunday of the Advent season leading up to Christmas, this celebration of God with us, Emmanuel, we, we light a candle. And I know I've said this for the past two weeks now, but this, our space doesn't quite give this the gravitas. So imagine that the room is black. And imagine that this is a, a real flame. You felt it? Yeah, that was the Spirit of God saying, the light is coming into the world. It's, it's a difficult thing I, I've felt to like um, 
think that Christmas is around the corner. Uh, maybe it's just that like I, I've now been fully co-opted by the Midwest and I want snow to tell me Christmas is coming. So like this drab weather is, is saying, I don't quite know, but there's like lights that tell me things. It's a mixed signals. But this here is telling me, this is like anchoring me, saying Christmas is on the way. But as, as we've moved in the season, I've been uh, reading this book, which I've not yet finished. I had to return it to the library because I like extended it to the last point. So maybe I'll pick it back up. But um, there's this, this little quote that comes from it, and I, I want to share it with you. It reads like this. 20 years have passed since the persecution broke out. The black soil of Japan has been filled with the lament of so many Christians. The red blood of priests has flowed profusely. And in the face of this terrible and merciless sacrifice offered up to him, God has remained silent. In 1980, the Catholic novelist Shusaku Indu released this book called Silence. And he did so to tell the story of the persecution that broke out in the 17th century Japan by the feudal lords who essentially were pressing the Christians where they had seen this great revival of, of sorts um, under the, like, the, the tutelage of the Jesuit priests. Whole port cities were Christian places, but a switch in power happened and then persecution broke out and they would press the people to renounce their faith. And if they did not, then they would be put to death. And Indo captures that story. In the words that we just heard, these are words from a fictitious character, uh, Father Rodriguez, but these words, they unravel the tension of faith and persecution. And they bring us to the reality that in some of life's bleakest moments, the deliverance that we desire simply does not happen. We are stuck in the despair. And really all we're left with now, reading that account, is this weird twinge of doubt. Yeah, why is God silent? And doubt has a way of cutting across the centuries from the 17th century to the 21st, but the doubt that's celebrated here, even possibly seen as virtuous, is more suspicious of God than one's trust in God. And this, this is what I mean. Even in this quote, it's clear, uh, and you could go and, and pick up this book from the library if, if you get there before I do. Uh, Father Rodriguez, his frustration isn't, isn't with God per se. It's, it's not necessarily like, like Father Rodriguez is like questioning the fundamental reality of God. No, it's, he's wondering, where are you? That this, these people are not profaning your name and yet you have remained silent. It might come out in our kind of language like this. Surely, God, you are unwavering in your goodness and that ought to compel you to move. Where are you? The gap between how we perceive God at work in the world and how we want God to work, it reveals what the philosopher Jamie K.A. Smith, uh, he would call like this. This is our desire for faith to be cut down to the size of our doubt and faith to conform to our suspicions. But what if uh, doubt is more than suspicion or mistrust? Like if you just... Uh, bring your cursor over doubt on your laptop and you double click it and you know a little definition pops up it's amazing what technology does now uh, what you'll primarily get are, are these words suspicion mistrust skepticism what if doubt is more than those things i like how, how frederick uh, beekner kind of puts this he says 
whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is no God. And notice there that we all have a faith. We are all trusting in something. So whether your faith is that there is a God or there is not a God, if you don't have any doubts, you are either kidding yourself or asleep. And I love this line, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. See, what if doubt is the tension of belief, like a companion along the journey of faith? In that way, then doubt is this invitation to, to join like a great company of saints, a great host of saints, including, according to Jesus, the, the greatest person born among women, John the Baptist. And so this morning, I just want to encourage like the perpetually suspicious among us to move maybe just a little bit beyond skepticism and to actually doubt. It might sound odd to hear a, a pastor of a Christian church saying, I want you to actually doubt. No, this is the thing. Like, we can doubt our doubts. So this morning, I want to invite you into something that we're just going to call Advent doubt. See, Advent doubt is here to give you and me the gift that we need but that we seldom long for, which is the gift of a hard-fought resilience of doubt. And I, I think that we, we want resilience. Like, we want to be the type of people who have some grit, some, who can persevere. Like, we love these stories of someone going through hardship and they make it through to the other side despite the things that are happening. But generally, we, like, we want resilience without the things that forms resilience. Maybe I'm just speaking of myself because I love those stories and I actually, I don't want to go through the things where I would have to acquire a resilient spirit. But I think that Advent doubt is here so that we could do that. Each year, this moment comes where we can acquire a type of resilience by sitting in the darkness and bringing our doubts to Jesus. Advent doubt makes space for us to interrogate our faith and our doubts and to do so with Jesus. And to my mind, that's why this gospel text comes to us on the third Sunday of Advent. To remind us, yes, it's not Christmas, but more so to remind us that as the light is coming into the world, it's often darkest before the dawn, which is this weird expression, this little idiom that it's often, it hurts before it gets better. And that tension is really at the heart of the interaction between John's disciples and Jesus, between John the Baptist and Jesus. And to see this, I just want us to work our way through this teaching text bit by bit so we can envision Jesus with us as we actually doubt. And so uh, to go there with me, uh, go back over to verse 2. This is what we read, Matthew 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, that is Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? A, a quick little note about John, if you recall from last week, John's a bit of an odd fellow. If you know the Christian story, you know he's like out in the desert eating bugs and stuff like that. Um, but he's, he's not just an odd fellow because he's special, like a four on the Enneagram or something like that. No, John is, uh, he is an odd fellow with other odd fellows and other odd gals. He actually, he fits a certain mold, and that is John is this fiery preacher from the prophetic tradition. In fact, someone would recognize John with like the Hebrew imagination, and they would go, oh yeah, this guy's, this guy's a prophet. 
because he, he fits the build. He, he is like Elijah. He's like Amos and Jeremiah and Isaiah before him. And because John is calling the people of Israel to participate in a new move of God. Remember, repent, turn around, change your mind about the way God has been working and move this way. And he's been offering that new move through this baptism. And much like the prophets who came before him, John, uh, John had a way of offending people. And the person that he offended in his time was this kind of Roman lackey, King Herod. And John not only assaulted Herod's claims to royal authority by announcing that a Messiah was coming, which would threaten his position, uh, but he also assaulted his character because of some sketchy stuff with marriage and sister-in-law. Some, you can read about it in, in other places. Nevertheless, John goes after his authority and his character, and so Herod arrests John. And it's while this puppet king has imprisoned John that he then hears what Jesus is up to, and this is where it gets interesting. See, in the chapters leading up to this moment, this is chapters 8, 9, and 10, this is what's been going on. These are the things that Jesus has been doing. He's been cleansing the leper. Which, in other means, like, if you're a leper, you are outside, you are ostracized, and to be cleansed, then you would go into the temple, you'd present yourself to the priest, you would have been an outsider, and now you can offer up worship. So he's bringing people in, he's crossing the aisle in a culture war to heal an enemy's servant. This is the centurion. It's, it's unspeakable. And yet he does it. He overcomes sickness and nature. He drives out demons. He forgives sins. He binds himself to those social outcasts. He actually invites them like tax collectors, like Matthew, to come and follow him, to be his apprentice. He's doing all the wrong religious stuff, like um, profaning the Sabbath, so people think. He's raising the dead. That one will get your attention. He is then driving out some more demons, giving sight to the blind. And then he does this. He warns all of the people who are following him that following him is going to be hard. And in fact, it might be the hardest thing. It might actually divide your family, um, but nothing with Jesus is better than everything. So do you still want to follow me? Then we get chapter 11. When John heard this, when he heard all that Jesus had been doing, then he goes and asks, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Let, Let me just say, like, is that the question we would ask Jesus? My guess is no, because we've been, like, we have this expectation that Jesus is the, the one who displays God's mercy, but I wonder if John wanted something a little different. And I want us to, to, to make some room in our hearts for the gravitas of this moment. This is Johnny B., your boy John the Baptist, who is doubting, folks. Just let this sink in. Like, from the womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes into the room, and he leaps in Elizabeth's womb. Like, this is John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If there's someone, anybody who knows if Jesus is the one, it's John. John knows. He's baptized Jesus. He knows he's the one, but... In the pain of prison, this crisis creeps in and casts doubt on whether or not Jesus really is the one that John's been hyping him up to be this whole time. And just a a quick little pastoral note here. Um, Doubt does not disqualify you. In fact, doubt, real doubt, I'm not talking about like thin skepticism or something like that. 
which we could have a whole other teaching series on that. But by the way, if you do want to read something about that, A.J. Swoboda, After Doubt, that, that one will that like uh, warm your heart and stir your affections for Jesus. Doubt does not disqualify you. Doubt ranks you among the company of those who are willing to actually doubt the character of their faith rather than the one in whom they put their faith. Doubt brings you and can bring you to a place of intimacy with Jesus. Consider John here. To whom, not a rhetorical question, to whom does John bring his doubt? Let's hear that a little louder so everybody online can hear. To whom does John bring his doubt? Jesus. To whom does John bring his doubt? Jesus. Where do we bring ours? If you're like me, it usually just pings and pongs around in my mind and then gets vented to Jess or a journal. An illeg- like I can't even read my writing, so I don't even know what I've doubted in the past. See, John, he could have easily vented to his disciples about his circumstances. Bound in prison by a puppet king and Jesus isn't coming. Doesn't he know? I've been hyping him up for... <sighs> Where is he? Did my preparation mean nothing? You see, instead of venting or tapping down his emotions or even like bypassing this moment, like um, I know that God is holding all things together and I know that he's going to work this for me. Like I know I, know I have a little bit of like, uh, I, like these things, I, it might be a joke. I don't know, is he the one? But we're going to get through. Instead of bypassing or tamping down or, or simply venting, John does something different. He brings his doubts to Jesus. And in response to this act of faith, hear Jesus' words in verse 4. Jesus replied, this is to John's disciples. These words are to go to John. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. And what's so curious about Jesus' response is that John already knows this stuff because it's what was reported to him. And if you've heard this passage preached on before, um, then you've likely heard a pastor say something I'm about to say. Jesus says nothing about John being delivered from prison. The captives are not released. But I think there's more. Like, what is Jesus actually doing here? Well, Jesus is sending a message in a message. Remember, John is a prophet. And Jesus is a rabbi living in a time and a place where the media of his day, it's not TikTok, it's not YouTube, it's Torah. And so for prophets and rabbis, this is how they could relate to one another. Jesus essentially delivers this report through the media of his day. It's this mashup of Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 61. In other words, he is, he is saying, John, I'm not coming and I am the one full stop. I appreciate how the New Testament scholar Tom Wright begins to unpack this. He says, just as wicked people don't like the message of judgment because they think rightly that it's aimed at them, so sometimes good people don't like the message of mercy because they think wrongly that people are going to get away with wickedness. It's likely that John expected Jesus to come in a different form. It's likely that John expected Jesus to come like an avenger to throw off Rome's mantle over the land, their stronghold, their stranglehold of the people. It's likely that John wanted to be delivered from his captivity and bring about God's glorious end. Instead, Jesus came with the paradox of mercy in the face of violence. 
Jesus is the one who will pray for his enemies when they are hanging him out to die on a Roman execution rack. And the late Eugene Peterson, he comments on this saying, the reason many of us do not ardently trust or believe in the gospel of Jesus is that we have never given it a rigorous testing, thrown our hard questions at it, faced it with our most prickly doubts. See, in the middle of John's doubt, he brings his struggle to Jesus, and what Jesus does is affirm his identity instead of delivering him. And I think this is a hang-up. I feel it, the tension in my heart, and you probably feel it differently. But pay close attention to Jesus' response in verse 6. He says this, blessed. This is the same language Jesus has used in the Sermon on the Mount, makarios. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. You could translate that does not fall away. Is not insulted because of me. But this idea of stumbling is, I, I think as the NIV presents it, the most helpful. It's as though Jesus is there. His identity is the one who is with us in our doubt, but may not deliver us ultimately from the circumstances of our doubt. He's saying, don't trip up over that. John, I'm not coming for you the way I, you think I should. And if you know the story, Jesus doesn't. John's beheaded by King Herod because of this scandalous doubt, like dance that kind of turns the gears of power against John, ultimately foreshadowing the type of death those who are allegiant to Jesus might face. Advent doubt has to be thicker than skepticism. It has to be able to withhold and withstand something that comes like, oh gosh, uh, like a, a whisper in a moment, like, is he the one? It has to be able to. And to my mind, skepticism, as I've experienced it, is really self-serving. It's easy. It's thin. And I, skepticism can masquerade as doubt, but I don't think it produces the fruit of doubt that resilience to the end or what Jesus calls blessing. Isn't it curious that Jesus can hold blessing and death in tension? I'm not saying I can, but Jesus can, and he delivers that message to John, and then he turns to the crowds, those who are with Jesus, and he starts to do this little compare and contrast in verses seven through 11. It's this little moment where he says, what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in fine clothing? No, you'll, you'll see them on the socials, like instead, like what you went out, you went to see a prophet. Did you see a reed swayed by the wind? That's this little double entendre, this little idiom, because Herod had a coin minted with his face on one side and the reeds by the Jordan on the other. Like, did you go out to see royalty and be impressed by pomp and circumstance? No, you went out to see a prophet, the one who's carrying the message of preparation. That's who you went to see. The one who will prepare the way for Yahweh. Which then actually brings us beyond where the Advent text goes, but we just have to go there, verses 13 to 15, because that's where the thought continues. See, Jesus says this in verse 13, to the same crowds, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus is inviting John and the crowds, and if, if you like, this is what's beautiful about the Gospels, you can just situate yourself right there in, you just plop down in the story. 
did the disciples leave when Jesus, when, did John's disciples leave and did they like run away from the scene or were they hearing this too? I don't know, but I'm guessing that maybe they also heard this. If you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. And if you know the story, Elijah was the one who was to prepare the way. So John's coming like, Elijah, who does that make Jesus? Well, let me just tell you, it makes him the one. He's doubling down. And then he says this line, whoever has ears, let them hear. In other words, with John comes the end of one era and with Jesus, the dawning of another. The light is coming into the world. And according to Tom Wright, which I found really helpful, the point of all this is that Jesus is offering a new way of understanding God's timetable. In a few simple words, he is telling his hearers that Israel's long history from Abraham and Moses through the prophets to the present moment was one long preparation, one long getting ready time. Now the preparation was over and the reality had dawned. John was indeed the greatest among the preparers, but even the most insignificant person who was accepting God's kingdom and living by it, in other words, who was hearing Jesus and following him, was greater simply because they were living in the time of the fulfillment. See, Wright goes on in his little commentary on Matthew uh, to, to make this very British comparison. If you know who Tom Wright is, he's like upper crust British kind of guy. He talks about operas and drinking tea. Um, you know, he was like a bishop at one point. So th there you go. Um, but so he makes this British comparison, but I think it carries the point really well. He, he talks about when on, uh, auto manufacturing came on the scene. Just imagine that moment. There's already a, a major mode of transportation. It's the horse and the carriage. If you've watched The Crown, you know a little bit about carriage racing. I have uh, recently dabbled, uh, not in carriage racing, but watching The Crown. Um, at that time, it's carriage, it's the horse. So if you are the finest of carriage manufacturers and the best breeder of horses, it doesn't really matter because what's coming is a revolution that is going to turn your world upside down. What you need to do is to pay attention to what's happening because as Wright says, the junior mechanic making motor cars in a factory is going to do better. That time of fulfillment is coming. There is a new program up and running. Those who have ears, let them hear. The question before us is, will we be those who have ears? Will we this Advent season be willing to actually doubt and listen? See, Advent doubt, real, unfashionable, heart-wrenching doubt, it has a way of kind of dampening the noise around us. And, and I, I was thinking about, like, how is this? And I think it's because doubt is crippling. Like, when you have that stomach, soul-wrenching doubt that's, like, wringing out every ounce of faith of you to just continue going a little bit further, to quench the thirst that you have for God, what it does is it doubles you over. But when you get low, all the noise, all the volume of the world seems to dampen because somewhere, like in the low tremble, in that place, a whisper can come from God. It like brings us low to our knees. And what's so interesting about the progression of this passage is that it's actually about hearing. Check this out. John heard the news about Jesus. 
Then Jesus goes on to instruct John's disciples to go and report what they hear and what they see. As, as though there's something John hears, but it's incomplete. They actually need an expansion, a, a widening of the horizon of possibility with Jesus. And then Jesus asks the crowds, what did you go out to see? Was it something lavish and luxurious? No, they saw the one who Malachi predicted. And this is from the NRSV. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. And it all comes together at the very end in verse 15. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, this might not sound like much of a progression for you, but in the language that Jesus is using in the, in the time and the place, hearing is not just about hearing. This is this word shema. Say this with me, shema. Shema Israel. This is a prayer that's prayed morning, noon, and night by, the, like, by devoted Israelites. It's a, a prayer that affirms the oneness of God. It, it's a prayer that affirms God's withness. And Jesus, in some sense, is saying, can you Shema? Our, and, and the Shema is always about hearing with the purpose of doing, of abiding, of remaining. You are like this inflection point where God's word comes to you and moves through you even as you are bent low. Jesus is asking us, will you be willing to listen? I think the way that we would shake it out is like, I, I, I know you're listening to me, but do you hear me? In other words, we're asking, I'm talking, but are you actually going to like, participate in the conversation? I could very easily hear the things that the person I love most in the world says to me and then not do anything with them. And they can be very simple, like, I don't know, being prepared to leave at a certain time. <laughs> There are things that can bubble up, that can stand in our way. We talked about distraction. We talked about dis like, th like that God is inviting us to the wilderness to almost like, just picture this, remove the clutter. And now it's as though God in the season of Advent is inviting us to see, to hear, to listen even in our doubt. It's almost like it's an invitation to trust. Precisely because the place that can offer some of the greatest healing can also be the place where we've encountered the deepest hurts. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 146, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Help and hope are bound up together in the story of Jesus. And I'll just, as we, as we come to a close, let me just... Um, just say, like, doubt is, is not the end. Church, we are not destined for doubt. It's likely that you will have a date with doubt. It's going to be awkward. Someone set it up. It was a blind date. You didn't expect it. That... But when you can go to that with Jesus, when you can encounter that moment with God, Emmanuel, God with us, it changes the tone and tenor of the doubt. The doubt is not just a place of wrestling. It is that, and you must do that. However, it is not the end, because doubt is not our destiny. Instead, with God in Christ, through the Spirit, there is life to come forth from a place of doubt. Brian, can I like, talk about you for a second? When Brian rolled up in here, he was uh, talking about um, being a person who knew a lot about Jesus, seminary flavor, like, like knew a lot about Jesus, and yet the, like the resonance of Jesus in his heart was kind of blah. 
And somehow over the past, I don't know, six, eight months, I don't know, closer to a year, like I have been able to see someone wrestle with their doubt in a community of Jesus, to laugh and cry and see the beauty of Jesus beginning to be released through him. See, there is something that Paul will then say in the New Testament about working out, not working for, but working out our salvation in fear and trembling. There is something weighty and heavy that can and probably will come to us as we are with Jesus. It's called fear and trembling. And if you are isolated and alone and you are encountering fear and you are like that sounds like death. But the witness of Jesus, and that, that's something that can move us to faith. I, I want to remind you, I am one person who gets to like encourage you, but that's not gonna be the end. Like you're gonna need more than one person encouraging you. You're probably gonna need three, four, five, a community of people singing songs. You're gonna need to be annoyed by us, annoyed by the, the, like us intervening at times that are uncomfortable. But then what comes before that is probably a moment where there's people who you can express your doubt to. So this is like my one pastoral challenge. Can I, can I give it to you? If you do not have a person that you can express your doubt to who is a follower of Jesus, this week, like here's a smart goal. This week, reach out to that one person. I can be that person. That's my job. Like, I get to do this. It's not a burden. So let me just speak some truth to those lies that are already creeping up. I want to do this. I'm not going to be the best at it. Like, Kate maybe is a better communicator, like more timely. She's coaching me. I'm, I'm receiving her pastoral care. It's good. Like, we got you, but you need a person with whom you can express your doubt so you too can experience the witness of Jesus because doubt is not your destiny. Faith with Jesus and the presence of his spirit, that is what will carry us into the Christmas season which we're awaiting. And so, so we don't end on like doubt being this place of despair. Let's just hear again from um, Frederick Buechner. His words on faith just stirred my heart for Jesus so I wanna leave them with you. Faith is a way of waiting never quite knowing, never quite hearing or seeing, because in the darkness, we are all but a little lost. There is doubt hard on the heels of every belief, fear hard on the heels of every hope, and many holy things lie in ruins because the world has ruined them and we have ruined them. But faith waits. Even so, delivered at, la at least from that final despair which gives up waiting altogether because it sees nothing left worth waiting for. Faith waits for the opening of a door, the sound of footsteps on, in the hall, that beloved voice delayed, delayed so long that there are times when you all but give up hope of ever hearing it. And when at moments you think you do hear it, if only faintly from far away. The question is, can it possibly be, impossibly be that one voice of all voices? Yes, it can be.